Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. This is the True Crime Book Club of Your Dreams, and this season I'm covering Ted Bundy. This episode, episode five, is Lake Sammamish. For those of you who are Ted Bundy buffs, I know you're like, oh my god, it's the episode. For those of you who don't know, this is the pivotal turning point in the Ted Bundy murder spree in Seattle because this bitch abducts not one, but two victims in one day. It's not great. Trigger warning, sexual assault, gratuitous violence, abduction. It's Ted Bundy. He's a piece of shit. Let's get into it. So Ted Bundy has been attacking college co-eds at the rate of one per month. It began with Terry Caldwell in January, who survived, and then Linda Healy, Donna Manson, Susan Rancourt, Kathy Parks, and in June, two victims, Brenda Ball and Georgian Hawkins. And the police at this point are like, what the fuck is going on? Where have these girls gone? Did they run away? If so... Why did they not tell at least one person or check in? We haven't heard from them. And the media is going crazy. Like there's someone abducting these girls. They're probably murdered. So it's just panic. It's chaos. The term serial killer is not a term that people use regularly. So they're just like, what's going on? Like the idea of it being one person is actually bananas apparently. But there are some people who during this time were like, hmm, Our friend Ted is a bit weird. So his last two victims, Brenda Ball and Georgian Hawkins, vanished in June of 1974. And during that same month, a really interesting event occurred. This event was told to Dr. Al Carlisle about Ted Bundy during his psychological assessment. Dr. Carlisle says that this story convinced him of Ted's violent nature. And this tea was spilled by Richard Larson, the associate editor of the Seattle Times, and the author of the book, The Deliberate Stranger. And then also Larry Volshaw, a reporter for the Times who was present and had a firsthand witness of all that I'm about to spill for you. So the plan was to go uh, river rafting, to hop in this yellow raft that was given to Ted by his girlfriend, Liz Kendall, (laughs) poor thing. And Ted had a date, not Liz, a girl named Becky. And Larry had a date, a woman named Susan. And the plan was just to take this leisurely run down the Yakima River in this yellow raft given to him by his girlfriend, but he decided to take another woman because, of course, Ted Bundy's a fuckboy. The group planned to take two cars to the river. They would drive Larry's car with the raft upstream, inflate it, pop it in the river, float down, have a good time, relax, and at the bottom was Ted's car. And the plan was once they floated downstream that Larry and Ted would hop in Ted's car, drive the seven miles back upstream just to get Larry's car and be done. You know, this little plan is actually pertinent to the story. So Ted's date, Becky, could not swim. However, since the river was fairly wide, they decided that they would probably be floating on the smooth side of the river to avoid any rough spots just to pacify her so she wouldn't fall in. It's fine. Personally, if I could not swim... I would not be uh, river rafting, but, you know, go off. Larry revealed to Dr. Carlisle because he was present. He says, The thing about this raft trip is I had always seen Ted as a gentleman gentleman, rather suave, the type of person that would never step out of line. As the raft trip progressed, 
his personality went to that, to the type of personality that none of us really wanted anything to do with. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've seen Ted since. That was about two years ago this summer. At any rate, there was one incident where Becky was in an inner tube tied to the raft and Ted untied her halter top and let it fall away. It was an embarrassment to her. It was clearly out of character with his personality. But more than that, we got into a couple of really tight situations which were very unpleasant. He put his head under a waterfall and almost overturned the raft. Becky almost went under. He just seemed to enjoy seeing people frightened. (laughs) Not him putting his head under a waterfall. Listen, if you were wondering if someone was crazy, watch a nigga put his head under a fucking waterfall. I'm guessing it wasn't that intense. Like, I'm imagining Niagara Falls, like, snapping his neck, but fine. I've been watching a lot of anime, seeing, like, superhuman shit go down. Recently, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you, baby, for, you know, showing me that. But anyway, Larry continues. At one point, Ted let Becky drift in the inner tube over the waterfall, knowing she couldn't swim. Then he got in the inner tube, cut himself loose, and floated by himself for a while. He decided he was tired of us and went down the river ahead of us. When the three of us finally floated down the river, Ted was there, and he said he was going to go get the other car. It was only seven miles long, but it took him a long time to come back. His personality went from a very pleasant person to someone who was practically unbearable to be with. I don't know whether he was tired of his amateur partners or what, but it was the most unusual personality transformation I have ever seen. I've been a reporter for about 10 years, and it's one of the strangest things I've seen. I believe he's got a split personality, a dual personality. It was so strange because he was the kind of person who would come to a party and he was so intelligent and he could easily carry on conversation and he was so polite. Then to see that other side of him was so shocking. His personalities were so different that after that, the three of us really didn't want anything to do with him. Dr. Carlisle asked, was there any other time when you saw this change in his personality? I really didn't. I had been to a few parties with him. I had the impression that he had a lot of money. He was always well-groomed, good clothes, and very well-mannered. And that was what impressed me, to see a really different side of him. So when all this other stuff started coming up, I thought, I need to talk to the authorities and give them a call. (laughs) When Ted was arrested for the first time in Utah in 1976, so this is two years after this little rafting event took place, he sent a letter to the Seattle Times where Larry and Richard worked, the two men who totally called the cops on him and spilled the tea to the psychologist. He sent a letter to their job asking for financial assistance because of course this white man was like, help me, I'm guilty, but help me. Which, sorry, like didn't know that was a thing. Also, you can just write to newspapers begging for bail money. Okay, go off. Larry found it interesting that Ted made no effort to say that he was innocent. Larry said, He was asking for sympathy, but making no effort to say, I didn't do it. Help me out. Larry then continued talking about the river trip. I don't know. It was a fascinating encounter, I'll tell you that. It was just that personality change. In spite of all of our objections, he really put us in a couple of tight spots where somebody could have gotten hurt. Going through the turbulence where the waterfall came out into the river, we almost lost the raft. 
There was no need to go over to that part at all. We had half a mile wide a river and much of it was very smooth. Dr. Carlisle asked, do you have any idea why he untied Becky's halter? No, that's always seemed to be a strange thing. And I don't think I was initially looking in that direction. Then I turned and saw the halter fall. She was a proper gal. That surprised me. I've taken other trips where that's happened and we didn't think anything of it. But with his personality change and with Becky, it seemed very strange. Also, stop undressing women without their consent. Period. Period. Why is that a thing? I'm going to let your top fall. How about I let your fucking teeth fall out of your mouth? Touch my top ridiculous if you're that type of person or you know that type of person who's like hey wouldn't it be cool if i undress this woman publicly without her consent stop stop and go to therapy and figure out why you feel the need to do that and discourage any of your associates slash friends from doing that it is inappropriate it is sexual harassment and you might lose a hand if you fuck around and find out that you done found the wrong one period. I digress. Dr. Carlisle. (laughs) Dr. Carlisle asked, had he dated Becky much? I don't think more than a couple of times. That night, after he finally came back, we headed back to Seattle. It was about a two-hour trip. We wanted to stop to get something to eat. He didn't want to, and he wasn't talking to anybody. Becky said it probably was because he didn't have any money with him. Becky said she would buy, Oh my God, he didn't say a word. And when he's talkative, he's very talkative. I always thought that something happened in that hour and a half when he was gone. He was a completely different person. Okay, so it does not take you an hour and a half to drive seven miles. Well, number one, not unless you're driving like slow as shit. Number two, where they were rafting was very close to one of the burial grounds. Well, I shouldn't say burial grounds. I hate using the term dump site, but one of the sites where the bodies of the people who he murdered were. I theorized that for that hour and a half, he went and had sex with their bodies because what the fuck else was he doing? So yeah. In The Stranger Beside Me, Anne Rule recounts a massive Avenger-style assembly of law enforcement that occurred that summer. And this happened in July 3rd, 1974. And she recounts being there because Anne Rule, if you don't know much about her, which you totally should, she used to be a detective and then she became a crime writer. And she got an invite to this conference because apparently she was a fucking homie. So just imagine though, being a woman at this crime conference with a bunch of 1970s like cops. Most of them were probably all white, let's just be real. Most of them were probably super, super hetero, very like machismo, like, you know, let's just be real. The fucking Washington state cop in 1974. So, <laughs> so she actually happened to be there. She recounts her experience of this in the book. So she says, On July 3rd, more than 100 investigators from over 30 departments all over Washington State and Oregon met in Olympia at Evergreen State College for a day-long brainstorming conference. The goal was to pool their information and perhaps find some sort of confluence. Anne Rule writes, I was invited to attend and felt a kind of eerie oppressiveness as I walked along the fur-shrouded path to the conference. 
Donna Manson had walked here four months before, headed for the same building. I found it almost impossible to believe that all these men, with scores upon scores of years and years of training and experience, could not find out more about the suspect they saw. It was not from a lack of trying. Every single department involved wanted him, and they were willing to explore any avenues, no matter how bizarre, to accomplish an arrest. The investigators compared the cases of the missing woman to one another, and a series of similarities began to unfold. Anne Rule writes, each had long hair parted in the middle, each was Caucasian, fair complexion, each was of more than average intelligence, each was slender, attractive, highly talented, each had vanished within a week of a midterm or final exams at local colleges, each came from a stable, loving family, each disappearance took place during the hours of darkness. She says each girl was single, but that's not true because Georgian Hawkins, she literally was abducted along the side of her boyfriend's frat house. And Kathy Parks, even though she had gotten into an argument with her boyfriend and was thinking of breaking up with him, she wasn't single. So yeah, I don't know where she got that from. Each girl had been wearing slacks or jeans when she disappeared. In each case, detectives had not one single piece of physical evidence that might have been left by the abductor. Construction work was going on on each campus where the girls were missing. And in two instances, Susan Rancourt and Georgian Hawkins, a man wearing a cast on his arm or leg, had been seen close to where they vanished. The officers at this conference wondered if it might be more than one person kidnapping these women. Could it be a cult choosing fair maidens to be sacrificed in deadly rituals? Apparently... During that spring of 1974, a shit ton of reports had come in from the northwestern states saying that a bunch of cattle had been mutilated, found in fields with only their sexual organs missing. So there was some fuck shit going on. Who knows what that was about? I'm upset that we don't have a follow up because, excuse me, we should look into that as well because someone's out here fucking attacking cows and taking their sexual organs. But okay. And the officers naturally believed that with this devil worship, that the natural or unnatural progression of such mutilations would be human sacrifice. Anne Rule writes, I believe in the efficacy of ESP, but I was most certainly not conversant with astrology beyond reading the daily syndicated columns. However, I had had a phone call a few days before that Olympia conference and a meeting with a woman who was an astrologer. My friend, who uses the initials RL when she charts astrology, is a woman who had worked at the crisis clinic while I did. I hadn't heard from her in some time when she called me in late June. Anne, you're close to the police, she began. I found something that I think they should know. Can we talk? I met with RL in her office where the desks, floors, and furniture were buried in charts with strange symbols. <laughs> She had been trying to find a pattern, an astrological pattern in the case of the missing girls. I've come across something. Look at these, she said. There's a pattern. Linda Healy was taken when the moon was going through a Taurus phase. From that point on, the girls vanished alternately in Pisces and Scorpio moon phases. The chances of that happening, the odds are almost impossible. You think someone is deliberately abducting those girls, maybe killing them because he knows the moon is going through a certain sign? I can't comprehend that. I don't know if he knows anything about astrology, she said. He might not even be aware of the forces of the moon. She pulled out a sealed envelope. I want you to give this to someone who's in charge. It's not to be opened until after the weekend of July 13th to 15th. 
Come on, they'll laugh me out of their offices. What else do they have to go on? I've seen the pattern. I've worked it out several times and there it is. If I could tell you who or where or when it was going to happen again, I would, but I can't do that. It's happened once when the moon was in Taurus and then half a dozen times back and forth between Pisces and Scorpio. I think he's going to go back to Taurus and start a new cycle. All right, I finally said. I'll take the envelope, but I won't promise I'll give it to anyone. I don't know who I could give it to. You'll find someone, she said. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I am very much into astrology. Specifically, I have been studying Jyotish, which is Indian astrology. It's Eastern astrology. It uses the sidereal zodiac. Western astrology uses the tropical zodiac. And But I did look at this pattern and the astrologer is right. It, it exists. He did abduct and kill Linda and Healy when the moon was in Taurus, Donna Mason in Scorpio, Susan Rancourt, Pisces, Kathy Parks, Scorpio, Brenda Ball, Scorpio, Jordan Hawkins, Pisces. And when she said it's going to happen again in Taurus, sis wasn't lying. She spilled that cosmic tea. And if you want, like, please send me an email, uh, truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. Let's discuss the cosmic receipts. I also have a theory as to why he was influenced by the moon because in Jyotish, his natal moon sits in the fourth house, debilitated in Scorpio, which we can talk about. Like, it's a whole thing. Also, for those of you who are like, I don't know if I believe in astrology, some of y'all believe in the stock market, but not the stars. Okay, where do you think the word lunatic comes from? La luna. You can look it up statistically. Crime is higher when the moon is full. Literally statistically proven. You believe that the moon affects tidal waves and tsunamis, but you don't think humans who are made of over 70% water are affected by these astrological bodies? Okay, go off. Believe in these dumbass politicians, but don't believe in the actual <laughs> stars and planets. Okay, you do you, fam. Anyway, so back at this Avengers meeting, Captain Herb Swindler asked if anyone had any ideas or if anyone knew a pattern. And Rule was like, oh shit, now's my time. And she took the opportunity to speak up and said, I haven't heard anything about numerology, but... My friend and astrologer says there's an astrological pattern. There were some weird-eyed raises to the ceiling, some chuckles, but I plunged ahead explaining what RL had told me. He's only taking the girls away when the moon is moving through Taurus, Pisces, or Scorpio. Then can she tell us when it might happen again? I'm not sure. She gave me a sealed envelope. You can have it if you would like. You're not to open it until July 15th. I could sense that my audience was getting restless, that they thought we were wasting precious time. I passed the envelope to Herb and he weighed it in his hand. So she thinks that's when the next girl is going to vanish, does she? I don't know. I don't know what's in that envelope. She wants to test her theory and she only said not to open the letter until then, July 15th. So at this meeting, the investigators agreed that the abductions had to have been carried out by only one asshole. Anne Rule writes, We were trying to figure out what ruse he could use that could put these women at ease enough so that they would drop their natural caution. Since childhood, most of us have been trained to believe that we can trust a minister, a priest, a fireman, a doctor, an ambulance attendant, and a policeman. A rogue cop, maybe? Or someone in a police's uniform? The next safe assumption was that most young women would have helped a handicapped person, a blind man, someone suddenly taken ill, or someone on crutches or in a cast. Also, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but 
a lot of these serial killers literally will impersonate a fucking cop or not even serial killers. You can look up predators impersonating service people, male people, workmen, someone who kind of blends in, but who you kind of place value on and who you would easily like open your door for. So just because someone flashes you a badge doesn't mean that that shit is fucking real. I'm just saying. So like if you see someone knocking your door and say, hey, I'm the police, look through your people. Hey, what do you want? Talk to them through the door. Because trust me, if they want to get you, they'll get you. But like you don't need to open your door for them. They can state what they want behind a locked door where you're safe, period. The Golden State Killer, he was a cop for a little bit and he had to drop out once they were like, hey, we need your DNA. He was like, ooh, nah, son, ooh, nah, nah, nah. Like these these fuckheads really try to pretend to be in these positions of power. Like, okay, priests, ministers, you know about the Catholic Church. You know what they be doing. Also, a doctor. Um, One of my neighbors is literally impersonating a doctor. A different story for a different day, but I'm literally a crime researcher. Done the research, found all the receipts, never worked at the hospital, confirmed, never even graduated the schools he said he went to. But because a doctor, a policeman, these positions have this like air of, "Mm, I should respect this person because of their career choice. Then they go ahead and get away with fuck shit. I think these are the people who we need to be holding accountable the most and really looking into their actions and see the motivations behind them because clearly there's something there i digress around the same time the pacific northwest avengers assembly was taking place (laughs) ted bundy was being a dick in a raft again this time with liz who for some reason is still with him I mean, talk about a fucking ride or die. It's 1974. They met in 69. She's still with this bitch. He's cheated multiple times. He knows about it. And like this poor woman still with him. She really believed in him. If I had a cheerleader, I would want Liz because let me tell you, she's not the most stable. She's going through her alcoholism now, but she's there. She's ride or die. So Liz writes, the 4th of July fell on Thursday. So I had a four day weekend. On Saturday, Ted and I piled into his VW with his rubber raft and my inner tubes in the back seat and his bike tied to the ski rack and headed east to go rafting on the Yakima River. It was a beautiful summer day and we were both in good spirits. Molly was with my parents for a month and I was on my own. I was sitting on the edge of the raft, paying attention to nothing in particular, when suddenly, and without warning, Ted lunged at me, put his hands on my shoulders and pushed me into the river. The plunge into the icy water took my breath away. I came up sputtering and grabbed the rope on the edge of the raft two days for a moment to do anything but hang on. I looked up at Ted and our eyes locked. His face had gone blank as though he was not there at all. I had a sense that he wasn't seeing me. I struggled to pull myself into the raft. He didn't move. He didn't speak. I could find no expression on his face. Why do you have to ruin everything? I began when I could finally talk. That's not funny at all. He looked at me as if I were a stranger. Then he looked away and said, It was no big deal. God, can't you take a joke? On the way home, we alternately bickered about what had happened and fell into long, unhappy silences. When we got to my house, he refused to unload the car. I grabbed what I needed, hurried up the steps, and slammed the front door behind me as he drove off. The next day, Sunday, July 7th, 
Ted came over in the afternoon with all the stuff still in the car. When I asked him where'd he been, he said he'd gone up to Lake Sammamish. I asked him what he'd done there. Nothing, he said. I walked along the water and thought, and then I ran into some friends. I just came over to unload the car. He was obviously still angry, but I wasn't about to apologize. We talked every day on the phone during the week as usual, and gradually the battle faded. We spent an evening together in the middle of the week, and it was as if nothing happened. So, the reason why he freaked out and pushed her into the water probably was because he was around the people who he murdered. Those bodies were right there. It was the same exact river that he had this incident before where he was dunking his head under waterfalls and untying people's shirts and untying people from the raft and dripping, like all this crazy shit. Same exact river. He was in proximity to his victims. And he probably was getting like sexually aroused. And I don't know, I'm not a serial killer, but some fucking serial killer crazy switch that already wasn't off went off and he was like oh shit killer mode and push her ass into the fucking water and she's lucky to be alive truly he probably would have fucking murdered her ass if she wasn't like what are you doing she continues the following saturday july 13th the weather was still clear and hot that night i called ted at his parents house to ask if he'd like to do something with me the next day no i can't i have other things to do what other things just things liz the next morning sunday july 14th as I was getting ready to leave for church, there was a knock on the door and Ted breezed in full of good morning cheer, acting as if nothing was wrong between us. I was hurt and furious, but I didn't want to keep the battle going. Ted wanted to know my plans for the day. I planned to go to church and then to a beach, but I hadn't decided which beach. He pressed me to tell him. Maybe he'll join me later, I thought, to make up. He, he didn't join her later. You know what he was doing. Sunday, July 14th, 1974, marked a change in the investigation of the missing woman of Washington. On this beautiful day, 40,000 people piled into Lake Sammamish State Park to enjoy the beautiful weather, a rarity in Washington state, and enjoy a promotional event hosted by a local beer company and radio station. So it was poppin'. Jerry Snyder, who was a DEA agent at the time, took his family to Lake Sammamish to relax in the sun. According to a statement given to police, he saw a woman who was dressed in a two-piece bikini with blonde hair. I remembered that earlier when we were arriving at the park, the same young lady was riding her bicycle parallel to my vehicle. This woman was 23-year-old Janice Ott. Janice, barely five feet tall, had gray-green eyes and long blonde hair parted down the middle. Janice was a probation caseworker at the King County Youth Service Center in Seattle. Her husband, Jim, lived over a thousand miles away in Riverside, California, where at the time he was learning to design prosthetic devices for the handicap. Come on, Jim. Her husband, Jim, said, legally, I was Jan's husband. However, we like to keep our marriage out of its traditional role, that is, being devoted only to each other, such that either of us could not expand ourselves to work with other people. We both felt a need to have an independence of our own so that we could expand and in turn enhance our relationship. Come on, polyamory. <laughs> oh, Jim, I hope he's doing okay. On the morning of July 14th, Janice arrived at the Suds Shop laundromat around 10 in the morning to do laundry before heading to the lake. The laundromat owner remembers Janice wearing cut-off blue jeans, a white open-collar button-up blouse, 
tucked in, no bra, bomb, okay, and tennis shoes. After she was finishing her laundry, he asked her to join him for a cup of coffee. She said yes. I walked her to the corner where her apartment was. She took her laundry in and came out about five minutes later, looking the same as before. We walked down to a small restaurant and sat in a small booth and talked over coffee. Janice mentioned she was separated from her husband and said something about being a liberated woman. After their coffee, Janice taped a note to her door, telling her roommate that she would be at Lake Sammamish that afternoon. Not long after Janice settled down into her beach towel, the DEA agent noticed, a white male walking to my right, walking down the beach toward me. And the reason I noticed him is that he was looking at all the girls. He will almost come to a complete stop. And it appeared to me he was trying to pick up a girl or trying to find someone who met his qualifications. The DEA agent noticed the man spot Janice Ott, walk up to her and said either, hello, miss, or excuse me, miss. Janice gestured to the smiling young man to have a seat on her blanket. He sat down carefully because his left arm was bandaged and in a sling. Once seated, the agent said the man crossed his legs and the two of them talked for about five minutes. As they spoke, Janice began to gather up some of her things. The DEA agent described the man's height as being somewhere between 5'10 and 5'11. He was about 25 to 29 years old, wore white boxer-type shorts and a beige shirt and had collar-length wavy light brown hair. So Ted Bundy approaching Janice Ott was actually seen by a fair number of people who thankfully took their accounts to the police when they asked. And these individuals all said that this man was wearing all white, like white tennis shoes, white socks, white shirt, white shorts, like a fucking psycho. I wonder if that has something to do with blood. Gross. He was a medium build, had blonde, um, like blonde brownish hair down to his shoulders, parted to the side, and he was wearing a sling on his left arm. They said that he spoke with a British accent. When he approached Janice, he asked her if she could help load his sailboat. And she said, okay, well, where is your boat? And he said, it's up in Issaquah at my parents' house. She was like, oh, I live in Issaquah. Coinkydink. You know, they discuss her potentially going on his sailboat, which might be a euphemism for fucking, who knows. And she says, can I bring my bike? And he says, sure, there's room in the trunk. And the last thing that witnesses see is Janice gathering up her clothes, her yellow 10-speed bike, and then walking away. She introduces herself as Jan, and he introduces himself as Ted. And of course, prior to Ted Bundy abducting Janice Ott, he was just approaching woman after woman after woman. There were over 40,000 people in the park that Sunday, and it was a numbers game. Honestly, he knew at some point the iron would strike hot, and he was just walking up to countless women. And when you read these books, there's just way too many to even include. Like it just gets monotonous of him walking up to someone, hey, I need a favor. Can you please help me load a boat? And they're like, okay, sure. Or uh, no, please fuck off. And one woman told the investigators he stopped many times to hold his arm against his body as if it was hurting, which I'm sorry, if that's the case, why are you loading or unloading a fucking sailboat? Whatever you're doing that involves lifting a fucking sailboat. And OT, why are you approaching tiny ass, barely five foot women, not in any way, of course, to be misogynistic, but you're at a beach with 40,000 people. There's definitely some fucking bros there who are like, I got my muscles. 
listen, I'm quite strong. I can lift my body weight. But if I were to be walking along, I wouldn't be like, oh, let me ask that tiny five foot two girl, maybe a hundred pounds soaking wet to lift a sailboat. Let's just use logic. Master plan. Ted Bundy. So smart. No, he's a fucking moron. She continues. He, after stopping and saying, my arm is hurting. When they got to the parking lot, the man pointed out his car. It was a metallic Volkswagen bug. When she asked where was the sailboat he mentioned because there was nothing attached to or even near his car resembling a sailboat, he said, it's at my folks' house, just up the hill. This witness, Janice said, ooh, yes, no from me, dog. And, you know, uh, sorry, sorry, can't help you there. And he said, well, she didn't say that exactly, but she said no, she declined. And the man said, thanks for coming with me. I should have told you it wasn't in the parking lot. The witness said, he was very polite very sincere and didn't get upset when I told him I wouldn't go with him, which, okay, why would you go to the beach and then ask someone at the beach to leave with you to pick up a sailboat and then go back to the beach? That doesn't make fucking sense. Why would you say, hey, I'm going to go to the beach to find someone to get my, like, what? Make it make sense. It's so stupid. God, if this isn't, make you believe Ted Bundy was not the criminal mastermind? I don't know what will. This bitch was just fucking lucky because it was 1974 and you had these keystone-ass cops who thought that a missing girl got a nosebleed at 2 a.m. and just fucked off. Like, okay, no. He was just a product of his environment. That's it. He planned, he, you know, he did what he did. He got away with it. Like, not that he was a moron. He did kill and abduct over 30 people, but he wasn't this, like, mastermind. Oh my God. No, no. Let him try some shit like this in 2021. Instantly caught. Anyway, so the girl says, about 10 minutes later, she spotted him coming toward her with another woman who was pushing a yellow bicycle. I thought to myself that it didn't take him very long to get someone else to go to the parking lot with him. This was the last time that Janice Ott was seen alive. Three hours later, around 3 p.m., Diane Watson stood by the concession stand where she noticed a man nearby just staring at her with an intense expression. In The Riverman, Dr. Robert Keppel writes, It made her nervous. He was tracking her with his eyes. She walked faster and became extra cautious as he followed her, never pulling his gaze away from her. He caught up with her, in spite of her increased pace, and asked, I need to ask you a really big favor. Will you help me load my sailboat? I normally wouldn't ask this favor, but my brother is busy and unable to help. She remembered he sounded embarrassed and a little out of breath. He pointed in the direction of the parking lot with the elbow of his sling as he explained the situation. I'm sorry, but I'm in a hurry to go, she told him. He said apologetically, that's okay. This woman could feel his eyes bore into her back as she walked away, and she was sure his gaze was still following her as she disappeared into the crowd. Her description of the man who stared at her was strikingly similar to the ones that witnesses have given of the good-looking man who kept approaching woman after woman in the park that sunny day on July 14th in Lake Sammamish. At four o'clock that same afternoon, Lori Adams was walking back from the restroom when a man with the sandy brown hair and arm in a sling harassed yet another woman simply trying to mind her business. This time, he reached out to her as she walked by and belligerently demanded, Excuse me, young lady, could you help me launch my sailboat? He grabbed her arm. 
She pulled away and said, sorry, and walked away, which that's like a different level of regression. Side note, sorry. I don't know if you guys have ever been in this situation, but I have had that happen to me. I would never forget this. I was walking down West 4th, about to turn like down to where I live when I was living in the village. And these two dudes were walking toward me. And there's just something about their vibe and their energy. I was like, here we fucking go. I know I'm going to get sexually harassed because that's what, it's not cat calling, it's sexual fucking harassment. And as I was walking, literally this dude reached out and tried to grab my arm. And it was just fucking instinct. I karate chopped his like wrist with my hand. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? And like hit his wrist. And he was like, what, what'd you just do? And I was like, don't you fucking put your hands on me. And I like lost my shit. What did he say? He said something of like, oh, you better watch your mouth before I slap you. And I, me, hothead could get myself hurt, but at the moment didn't give a fuck literally dropped my shit i was wearing a backpack and a jacket and i took it off and let it fall into fucking west fourth street i was like fucking hit me then bitch hit me then bitch you ain't gonna do shit you can say you're fucking hit me let me fucking and i was like going off i'm five two maybe 115 pounds going off on two dudes on the street at seven o'clock at night me so then the other dude was like yo she crazy she crazy let's just go and i was like listen to your fucking friend listen to your fucking friend before you get fucking hurt and then he was like you know what fuck you and they walked away he's like fuck you and they walked away and then these two women across the street like walked over and was like so we were gonna help you we were watching but then it looked like you had it and i was like thank you for like being there like sidelining like coming to my rescue just in case but like don't let these niggas treat you like that no no like stand up for yourself and like of course we have instances of women like doing just that standing up for themselves for fucking sexual harassers and catcallers and getting killed so it's like a fine line of like do i stand up for myself and like defend myself and say no and risk getting hurt like i'm not going to tell you what to do of course not um look out for some self-protective merch on the website soon truecrimeaficionados.com coming very soon because enough is a fucking enough like watch where you put your hands or you may not fucking have hands anyway and so this continues even though he literally three hours prior already abducted someone this bitch is back in the park looking for another victim and he just keeps approaching woman after woman again and again and all of these women, they also talk to the police and their accounts range from him, like after they shut him down, that he just stared at them until they walked away or he was super persistent even after they said no and like wouldn't respect their boundaries. He even went up to a 16 year old and said, hello, young lady, can you help me with my sailboat? Meaning he knew she was a fucking child, meaning he's a fucking pedophile. He also said to one woman, it's better that I ask someone who's alone, excuse me. So he's just like on fucking like serial killer mode, like watching women in the parking lot and then stalking them through the park. Like one woman was like, yeah, I saw him as I was riding in. And then 15 minutes later, he like walked up to me. Fucking scary. Like it's, please just be careful. Don't help people. <laughs> I mean, help people, but Uh, be careful. The next woman would not be so lucky as the others. Her name was Denise Naslin and she was 18 years old. She was on a double date with her boyfriend Kenneth and another couple, Bob and Susan, at Lake Sunlamish Park that day. 
They drove to the park in her 1963 Chevrolet, and they even brought her dog along because, of course, it's been a fun, sunny day with your boyfriend and your friends and your dog and just try to have a fucking good time. She's 18 years old. It's the summer. It was a last minute trip thrown together by their friends and the group of me to meet at a tavern at 1215 for a quick beer before they headed to the park. So their friend Bob, who was on this trip, he admitted to the authorities that he and Denise each ate four volumes on the way. Volumes, volumes. I've never taken them. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing them. I don't know how strong that is because again, I don't take them. I know they're a prescription drug. So it obviously depends on the strength of the prescription, the size and weight of the person taking it, which you already have in your system. But they already were drinking some beers and now they're taking four volumes. So they were getting fucking lit. Um, I will not advise you to take prescription drugs because they are very, very addictive. Um, Pot is great. Prescription drugs. Um... (laughs) (laughs) scary no 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 maybe not listen you do you and just be careful anything excess is not great so denise was extremely beautiful five four and she had long dark hair and dark eyes she was studying to be a computer programmer yes woman in science and working part-time as a temporary office helper to help pay her way through night school an independent smart ass bitch just trying to make her way and be a woman in science Ugh. the group arrived at the park set up a picnic spot met up with some more friends smoked a J, sat listened to music drank more beer like literally just enjoying their sunny ass day like i've had so many moments of like this with my friends so oh i can't even imagine around 4 p.m bob got a round of hot dogs and hamburgers for the group However, according to his girlfriend, Nancy, Denise told her she was still feeling pretty high before drifting off to sleep. When Denise finally woke up, they ate, talked, and drank some more beer. Around 4.30 p.m., while her friends and boyfriend slept, Denise got up and headed toward the restrooms. Around this time, it was reported that a man with his arm in a sling was walking back and forth in front of the restrooms, pacing like a fucking animal. Mind you, He's already abducted one woman today. In the Bundy murders, Kevin Sullivan writes, According to a witness who later positively identified Denise from a photograph, she was in fact the one who stopped to speak with the man in the sling after leaving the bathroom. That would be the last known sighting of Denise Naslin. 16 days after her disappearance, her good friend Robin Woods would tell detectives if she was high on July 14th, If the guy was a smooth talker and good looking, Denise would have helped him. So her friend who was with her at the park, Bob, told investigators, around 440, Denise got up from where we were sitting and walked away without saying anything to me. And that wasn't unusual because I assumed she was going to the restroom or to find her dog that we had taken to the picnic. But she never returned and we began to search for her. We looked all afternoon without finding her. Back at their picnic site, Denise's friends began to get restless. Her trip to the restroom should have only taken a few minutes. She had left behind her purse, her keys, and even her sandals. When they went to search for her, they only found her dog, and he was alone. Soon, Denise's car was the only one left in the parking lot. They reported her disappearance to the park rangers at 8.30 p.m. It was too late to drag the lake or even search the park thoroughly. The next day, one of the most extensive searches ever carried out in King County would begin. Her mother, Mrs. Eleanor Rose, recalled that Denise often said, I want to live. There's so much in this beautiful world to do and to be seen. That night, Janice Ott's husband waited for her to call, but she never did. 
He called her repeatedly all night, but she never answered. Ann Rule writes, I talked to Jim Ott a few days later after he'd caught a plane for Seattle and told me of a strange series of almost extrasensory communications he'd received the days after July 14th. He said, When she called me Saturday night, the 13th, I remember that she was complaining about how long it took for mail to get from Washington to California. She said she mailed me a letter, but she thought she'd call because it took five days for me to receive it. In that letter, she'd written, Five days! Isn't that a drag? Someone could expire before you'd ever got wind of it. When Jim Ott got that letter, there was every indication that Janice had indeed expired. I didn't know she was gone on Monday night, and I waited by the phone until I fell asleep. I woke up suddenly and looked at the clock. It said 10.45, and I heard her voice. I heard it as clearly as if she were in the room with me. She was saying, Jim, Jim, come help me. The next morning, Jim had learned that his wife was missing. It's funny, I'd sent Janice a card that crossed in the mail with her letter. It was one of those sentimental cards with a guy and a girl on it, kind of walking into the sunset. It said, I wish we were together again. Much too long without you. And then I wrote at the bottom, and I don't know why I chose those words. I wrote, please take care of yourself. Please be careful about driving. Be careful about people you don't know. I don't want anything to happen to you. You're my source of peace of mind. Jim said that he and his wife had always been close and had often shared the same thoughts at the same time. And now he was waiting for some other message, some sign of where she might be. But after those clear words in his room on July 15th, Jim, Jim, come help me, there had only been silence. Liz gives her version of events around the double abduction at Lake Sammamish. After Ted barged into her apartment demanding to know which park she would be at, and probably to make sure she wouldn't be at Lake Sammamish, she did end up going to a park, assumed he was going to join her, but got stood up, had a shitty day at the park, and then returned home. She writes, Later that evening, I was stepping out of the shower when Ted phoned. I stood dripping on the floor as he asked me to have dinner with him. He was at the door in 10 minutes, starving, he said. The university student newspaper had just run a hamburger sweepstakes and declared the hamburgers at the bowling alley near Green Lake the best in town. Ted flopped in a chair while I got ready to go. He had a cold that seemed much worse than it had been that morning. He was so stuffed up, he could hardly talk, and he looked tired. I asked him what he'd been doing. He just cleaned his car, he said, and helped his landlord with yard work. The hamburgers lived up to their reputation, good and big. It was all I could do to finish one of them, but Ted ate two and then wanted to go to an ice cream parlor for dessert. I hoped our dinner would give us a chance to talk about our fight, maybe even see how he felt about me. When I began, I could see that he wasn't particularly interested. Yeah, I understand what you mean, he said, as though that took care of the matter. I could see that he didn't feel well, so I stopped pushing. He was unusually quiet. As I looked at him across the table, I was struck by how close together his eyes looked. They were a little puffy from his cold, but it was odd that I have never noticed that before. After dinner, we went for ice cream, but we didn't linger. Ted wanted to go home and sleep. His cold was getting worse by the hour. But the ski rack we'd used the weekend before to carry his bicycle was still on his Volkswagen. And tired as he was, he still decided to put it back on my car. It took 15 minutes in the fading twilight. It was dark when he finished and went home. Ted stayed home sick on Monday. After work, I took him some orange juice. 
a can of chicken soup, and my copy of All the President's Men. (sighs) And now we get Ted Bundy's account of what happened that day at the lake when not one, but two women were abducted and murdered. It is not good. I know I keep saying that, but like, it just keeps getting worse. It keeps getting worse. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So this is from um, Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth, the only living witness. Honestly, the true MVPs, because they as journalists got like fucking five confessions from Ted Bundy, like wild. And again, this is in his stupid third person bullshit. So Ted Bundy says, There were times when he felt almost immune from detection, Bundy said. Not in a mystical or spiritual sense. He didn't feel like he was invisible or anything like that. But at times, he felt that no matter how much he fucked up, nothing could go wrong. Ted Bundy stopped and pondered. The boldness was probably a result of not being rational, he added. Or just being moved by a situation, not really thinking it out clearly. Just overcome by that boldness and desire. Only in retrospect would he wonder how he managed to succeed in spite of some rash and bold acts. It was clear that the Sammamish incident was either the result of venting a great amount of tension or frustration that had accumulated over a long period of time. Or, he added, it was an attempt to indulge in a different MO. Ted was warier of talking about Lake Sam than about any other individual case. He would say nothing of the witness identifications, the use of the sling, or how Denise and Janice were approached. I asked him what happened once the girls had been taken from the park. He would not be able to drive a great distance without arousing the suspicions of the girls in the car, Bundy said, and so he would seek a secluded space, a secluded area, within a fairly short driving distance of the Lake Sammamish area. Then he'd pull off the side of the road where there were no cars, no traffic or whatever. What would be the nature of the conversation between the two of them during the drive? He'd be acting a role, talking about the weather, reinforcing the ruse, just chit-chat. He had a house somewhere in that area and took them there, one girl to the house, and came back and got the other one. In order to do that, the person had to be very secure that no one would enter the house or disturb it, or that no one else lived there or would be expected to come there. Right. So you regard it unlikely they would have been killed at the spot where they were later found? Ted nodded. I see, I said, seizing upon this apparent confirmation of a suspicion long held by police. The house. Would it have been where people were on vacation or something like that? Was he aware this house was empty? That's possible. What would be the method you'd expect him to use to incapacitate her? Fear. I suppose in such circumstances, we could expect some sort of fear factor. A knife, a gun, Anything to gain the attention of the individual. So the weapon is drawn or brandished, then what? You could tie her up and try to calm her down. It's really hard to say. Once that point has been reached, he could sexually assault her, tie her up or whatever. Would she be gagged? Well, she might be. If the surroundings he chose were secluded enough, then it wouldn't make any difference. How would he kill her? I don't know. Strangle her, stab her, something. Did he anticipate getting more than one victim at the start of the day? Well, again, 
This Lake Sammamish incident would mark an extraordinary departure from the previous crimes attributed to this person. So then, we probably would assume a number of departures. In all likelihood, this person knew about the criminal investigation process. If he would have been acting more rationally, he would have realized that the disappearance of two girls in this fashion would yield a tremendous amount more response and activity on the part of the police. So normally, he wouldn't want to generate this additional attention. It's possible he felt the first one wasn't satisfactory. Or again, assuming this was an extraordinary departure, he's acting in a less restrained way. We might also expect that whatever desires drove him seemed to be stronger than usual. Would this have been the first instance of a double murder? It would probably be. Would the EML be the same with the second victim? With this question, he paused. Since published accounts indicate that a number of women were approached in that same manner that day, and since the first one worked, I guess he'd figure a similar approach would also be successful. I decided to try shorter questions in hopes of more direct answers. Would he change clothes? Probably not. Would there be any alteration in his appearance? Probably not. Would the second woman be taken to the same place as the first? Well, we're figuring this person had fallen into a kind of routine or pattern, so I'd assume he took her to the same place. We can assume that because apparently the bodies were found in close proximity to each other. Would the second victim see the first victim? Oh yeah, probably, in all probability. Will the other individual still be alive or not? Well, had he been cautious, he probably would have killed the first individual before leaving to get the second girl. But in this instance, since we've agreed he wasn't acting cautiously, he hadn't killed the first girl when he abducted the second. Would the first victim be conscious? In all probability. <sighs> Jesus fucking Christ. What happened when they encountered each other? It seems there would be little importance attached to the arrival of the second individual. It seems the person will be more acutely interested in her own welfare and well-being. I suppose if you took two such individuals and kept them confined for days or months, they would certainly establish a rapport and be very concerned about each other's welfare. Here, there was a good amount of fear and panic. Most of us freeze under those circumstances. We might surmise that in this case, there was little interaction as such. What happens then? He'd follow the same pattern with the second girl as the first. In view of the other girl? In all probability, yes. And the author writes, I thought that by now I had become immune to specific shocks, but I wasn't. According to what Ted just said, Janice Ott, in all probability, watched him assault Denise Naslin. In what he called an aberration or a unique circumstance, the two girls had been alive together at his unknown lair. Hours later, a physically spent Ted was eating hamburgers with Liz and complaining to her of a head cold. After the sexual assault, he has his two bound victims, I observed. What does he do now? Well, came the reply. By this time, his frenzied compulsive activity of the day had ran his course. Then he'd realized the jeopardy he was in. Then the normal self would begin to reemerge and realizing the greater danger involved was suffer, panic, and begin to think of ways to conceal the act, or at least his parts in them. So he'd kill the two girls, place them in his car, and take them to a secluded area and leave them. Right away? Within a matter of hours? Would the killings be quick and as painless as possible, or... 
The act of killing the victims was just a necessity, he said quickly. He would not linger or relish in the killing since it was only a means to an end, to avoid detection. What would be the emotional aftermath? Well, later in the day, this person would be exhausted. After going through what he went through, he would be in no mood to do much of anything. Sure, Jan. At his office in the Seattle Police Department, Captain Herb Swindler opened the sealed envelope given to him by Anne Rule from the astrologer. The note said, If the pattern continues, the next disappearance will occur on the weekend of July 13th to 15th. It had come true. Twice. Pium, 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 pium. <laughs> we did it. Oh boy. Ted Bundy kidnapping and abducting two women at once because why would he do anything other than escalate? Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned next week for the aftermath of Lake Sammamish. There are twists, there are turns. People named Ted who have Volkswagens better look out in the 70s. If you want to stay in touch, you can email me at truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. You can also follow on the Instagram at truecrimeaficionados to see all of the photos associated with this episode. Please rate and review if you have a chance. It means so much. Thank you. My sources for today's episode are located in the show notes. So you can check out all the books that I read. And thank you so, so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for some delicious purrs from Mimi as a nice little palate cleanser. I know I said I would do that last time and I totally forgot, but I got those purrs for you. All right. Keep your head on the swivel. Bye.